Hello, and welcome to the Hacker Noon podcast. I am David Smook, and before we get to our great guest today, I'd just like to say sorry for the hiatus. Uh, we were doing an important migration, moving out the Medium content management system, replacing with our own. Uh, when we left in July, we were a 5,000 site in the world, according to Alexa. You know, now we're about a 3,400 site in the world. So we've done a nice uh, solid jump here, being on our own system, being in our own hands. And today we're gonna talk with longtime Hacker Noon contributor, Mark Nadal, who is uh, one of the faces of decentralization. We've seen him on NBC, uh, Hacker Noon. <laughs> That's it. So, uh, Mark, what the hell is a decentralized internet? The decentralized internet is what we all were using originally. We had our emails on our devices, and then someday we wound up signing up for Gmail and getting in the car, going on a drive to some address that somebody had emailed to us, and we discovered, wait a second, we're in the middle of the boonies now, and we can't access that address because it's on some server or another way to put it is like you got kids i got kids they watched that tv show twenty thousand times and now we're driving and somehow they can't watch that same video they've watched ten thousand times that we bought because somehow it's stuck up there in you recently had a rough road trip are you doing okay I mean, we do commute back and forth between the Bay Area and San Diego, and we also did a bunch of commutes up to, like, Utah and Colorado. So, yeah. Um. So, with the decentralized web, there would be a local peer or server that you could then access uh, in the boonies? Is that kind of the idea here? Yeah. I mean, we, we're kind of used to that, as before. We, we loved the cloud because it backed up our information, but we could still access it. But then slowly over time, we started discovering like, wait a second, that video that I bought, I can't actually watch it unless I'm connected to the hive mind. And <laughs> that's frustrating, right? Um, so in this hive mind, are you liking to point out any specific companies that are, you know, Queen Bee? <laughs> Bang, Google, Facebook. <laughs> Um, Microsoft, Netflix, YouTube, I mean, what, even Apple, right? Like, what company is not, okay, it's just like, does your kid watch the same YouTube video, like, again and again and again and again? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I, I try and get her to explore, um, you know, she'll, her exploration lately has, instead of new shows, it's been different language. So she'll request like Spanish Frozen or French Frozen for some reason. And she like, <laughs> she can't understand it at all. Or I, I don't know. I think she just likes that they sound a little different. While she sees the imagery, she, you know, knows. So she's going to speak like five different languages fluently. <laughs> uh, she can watch five different languages. <laughs> Like, Listen. Why do you have to re-download it every single time? Like that's so wasteful on our internet bandwidth bill. Like, yeah, I I do have I think like a terabyte or something, which I'd have to be downloading. I think like a video game every single day for like twenty four seven hours. So like a terabyte is actually a lot of data. I haven't been able to use it up, but it still like concerns me that like, why are we resending this, the same kid video a thousand times? So 
it's, it's not that the de-web or decentralization is against what we have today. Like everything's going to still operate the same. It's just going to work better when you're on road trips and when you're at home and it's just going to be cheaper, faster, better. It, you're not going to even notice the de-web happens. Um, and I, a lot of where I think decentralization gets a lot of strength is like wanting to destroy the incumbent. And whenever you see monopolies or oligarchies, it's kind of like decentralization kind of becomes this hero. And, you know, we turn it into a thing that like to the common listener, you know, it's an, it's an easier thing to comprehend of like the little guy overcoming the big incumbent. But, you know, if they're successful, aren't they just another Google? <laughs> like, is like what does a trillion dollar decentralized Internet company look like? And how is that actually better than what we're currently living with today? Well, I don't know if a trillion dollar decentralized company should exist, right? <laughs> But isn't that the end? That's like, if it's successful, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, you're in these, these price ranges like Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and you are like, what would a, a trillion dollar decentralized company look like? Don't make me bring up the stupid blockchain Ponzi schemes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's partly why people are obsessed with Bitcoin and um, Bitcoin's fine. Okay. But like all those other coins is why they're obsessed with them because they're like, okay, it's not going to be a company that is a trillion dollar, you know, centralized, decentralized company. No, that doesn't make sense. But maybe it's the company or the developers or the, um, the coin or the blockchain behind a trillion dollar market cap. But I even think that's wrong because forcing people would have to pay to play to get into a free open ecosystem. Like, the, what? no, like people are just going to keep on using ecosystems that are already open. I don't want to have to go to a website that then says, you can't use this website unless you use my Ponzi coin. And then you try and get the Ponzi coin and you find out you can't even use the Ponzi coin on the website because then you have to download a separate browser. And you're like, what? So no, I don't, I don't think that's the way forward. Well, this is where Libra kind of is that Trojan horse, you know, of saying, hey, if we're going to power all Facebook messenger payments, WhatsApp messenger payments, Instagram messenger payments, and we're going to have it look like a dollar, you know, and with the moment you experience it, I put in my $2 and then someone else sends me, I pay them $2 for the coffee. Someone else pays me $5 for their thing. What really happened was Libra made multiple transactions with, with the, the guise of like, hey, the UX is there and I'm used to seeing dollars and I got that many dollars back. Like it went through the system and it came back to me. In cryptocurrency, you know, the technology all happened, but to me, I just sent out $2 or I got $5 and it doesn't feel like anything different. I don't like Libra, but I very much agree that I am a human first technologist. So I don't care how bad or good my code is. If humans can't use it or it's not a good product or human experience, ugh, right, yeah. So we want something like Bitcoin that's gonna behave like Libra, but you know, unfortunately Facebook's got all that time, energy and money to create that seamless experience. I mean, the cool thing about, not cool, but like, when you're Facebook, you can literally just wait for good tech to emerge or a trending app to emerge and then just do it. You know, it's like, oh, that's not our coin. It's like, dude, are you serious? Like one thing we've been doing on Hacker Noon is anytime, or a lot of contributors have been doing is anytime Facebook, Libra appears, we call it Facebook's apostrophe S Libra to make it clear. This company has the most to gain from this currency. This company put the most into this currency. This company has the most sway on how this currency works. You know, just like, hey, that's education to the readers. 
it's like, it, as opposed to anyone else, it's the most appropriate proper noun for the apostrophe S. And it's how people should be talking about it. It's not, it, I get that it's a new entity. And if you go deeper into all these new tech companies, there should be a great thing of just graphs how many new entities each tech company creates. Like, it's like, just because it's a new entity is really no, it doesn't mean it's not yours. Like, it's like saying, oh, I bought a second house. I don't have my first one. You know, it's like, that's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good editorial review. I, I now I want to read Hacker Noon more because that's <laughs> a good filter on stuff. Um, yeah, and, and here's like the other thing is, and this is moving very quickly towards the freeism route that you know I'm obsessed with, which is all yeah. banks are turning into social networks, and all social networks are trying to turn into banks, and that's because the future of money is in really what credit card companies figured out, fraud detection, network analysis, blah, 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 blah. So like China is like saying, oh, we don't really care about our Chinese currency anymore as long as we've onboarded everybody onto Alipay and, um, and whatever we pay or whatever the other ones are. And, and that means China can see the flow of where money is going and that's fundamentally more important for them doing the social um, credit currency. And same thing in the United States, right? Like okay, well now Facebook's trying to become a bank. What? No, like the value is not in the money. The value is in understanding the interactions between people. And so I predict that um, money is going to vanish. You're not going to have a zero sum transactional money where I give you Bitcoin, I lose it, or I give you dollars and, you, and I lose it, you gain it. You're going to have money and currency that just evolves entirely into relationships. What are the interaction effects between people? Um, now, of course, if that's all centralized, even if money is valueless, you'll always have currency to measure that relationship and some level of input output and, you know, give receive, I think will always be essential. Even if, I mean, that's kind of a wild idea. You said not to like, just gloss over it, that there's going to be no zero sum transactions and money will not exist. I mean, that's a, you're pretty far on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're right. There will still be a currency. The currency, there will be a way to measure things. There's just not going to be, you're not going to lose things. So you'll be able to measure stuff. You're just not going to lose that measurement. And that, and that generally speaking is much more pro-social for human behavior. Um, so like, like nobody wants to lose their money, but every single company in the world is trying to get it from you. <laughs> and, so under this model, I can go under this model you have, say it exists now. I go down to the local restaurant and I buy lunch. What the hell happens? Where does the money come from? Where does it go? How does it tracked? Um, I have an article on Hacker Noon that I can refer <laughs> to. Uh, it's, Hacker Noon is this really cool website. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, I have my, one of my domains point straight to um, Hacker Noon. So free.eco, F-R-E-E.eco should hit up the Hacker Noon article that I explain all this. But the gist is that restaurant, the more important gist, this is an indirect way of answering the question, throws out their food at the end of the day. Um, so they make more food than they can handle in terms of their demand or, or supply because um, they want to always have food available. So the crazy thing is like, wait a second. Like we're walking into these stores that have post scarce amount of food. Now they only do that because they have been able to make enough profit. Um, but why can't we just start measuring the trend, not the transaction, but the interaction, not the transaction, but the interaction. Okay. I go to the store and as long as they have more food than what they can um, 
than, than demand, why not just give away that food and track how many people who have um, eaten the food? So in this system, it's kind of like Uber or Airbnb. And I want to note, I hate the reputation systems. Uh, they, they will lead to dystopia, but it is an easy way to think about it. You walk into the restaurant and as long as they still have food that they're giving out, they give it to you for free and then you rate the restaurant on Yelp and you give them a really good review. Half, I shouldn't say half the time, it's not that often. But like oftentimes I go to a restaurant and they're like, hey, do you want some free French fries? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, but you have to rate us on Yelp and you can't tell Yelp that we gave you these free French fries. And I'm like, okay. Um, that's just where things are going anyways. I don't know if that's happened to you or not. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen it around. Um, I, Do you I think mean, it's unethical? Um, I think it should be disclosed that I got free french fries for this review in that example. Um, I don't think it's unethical. The platform has to make it unethical. The platform, I think, has to say these are the rules of the system and if all the rules are not. Um, but at the core of it, the incentives are both there. It's clearly for you to type one sentence and you get free French fries, depending on your words per minute bill, you know? So if it's a 10 cent, <laughs> 10 word sentence, you know, let's say the French fries cost five bucks, say, you know, you, you have a pretty high, I mean, well, not really 50 cents. So 50 cents per word, it's a decent rate. You know, if you're willing to do that labor in exchange for the free French fries for them, it's definitely worth, it's like, cause it's not even $5. They have so many French fries and they are going to throw away French fries at the end of the day. The other thing your idea made me bring up, this is more of a fringe uh, use case made me think of was um, that there have been, there has been a Seinfeld episode with the muffin tops where they, the Elaine, okay. She realizes the muffin tops are better than the mu muffins. So she starts to start a business of only selling muffin tops, but literally no one will take the bottom of the muffins like all the homeless shelters reject it. It's just like, they literally deem it like below eatable food. <laughs> so I'm not saying that would happen in this case, but there is something to be said of like, the leftovers aren't as good, you know, and they're, they're always gonna kind of be devalued so that the restaurant, and still if, if people keep like, if the unit economics don't work where they sell the one lunch and they don't make money, it doesn't matter that a thousand more people come. As a matter of fact, the hole is getting bigger. You know, <laughs> if you have to serve a thousand more customers and you're losing on each customer, you're better off serving no customers <laughs> and staying at zero. <laughs> don't remind me of my open source ways. Um, <laughs> I do want to compliment capitalism for this because I don't think had we not gone through the industrial revolution and capitalism and stuff that we, we wouldn't have gotten here. So, but it is very clear that we are here. And like, I'll, like when you see a, a couch on the street, that is freeism starting to emerge out of capitalism. When you see, you know, a, a mattress or a, you know, a, a anything. I like oftentimes you just see that like people have left some really valuable good and you're like, yeah, I want to snatch right, so that. Let's, let's not leave that example for a moment because all right, I live in a very remote 3000 person town, like, and moving stuff is a big deal and a pain in the ass. And you know, like I've actually done a lot of work myself to move stuff around, paid someone to take stuff away, you know? So it's like, just because it's free, like the cost of acquisition can defer the cost of free. And a couch is such a good example. 
because there's always a cost of acquisition to a couch. Like moving a couch is a cost. And like late, we saw someone leave a desk out on the side of the road for the first time living here. And we were like, ugh, that's so disrespectful. Like that's just gonna sit there. No one's gonna wanna pick it up. <laughs> And then in the city, I think the total opposite. Uh, it was like the Bermuda Triangle, you know, like just put something out on the curb, come back after lunch and it's gone. Yeah. So it, there is like, it's sometimes it depends where you are, you know, and I, yeah, I don't know. But, but this is also why this is becoming more popular over time and why things like Lime, the scooter company, um, Lime Bird, Jump, I don't know the other ones, and even Uber is like ultimately as capitalism overproduces, and that's great that it does, the money is in the distribution. Now, distribution is typically thought of as being a socialist construct. And it's true, they have a certain way of going about that. But even in a capitalist setting, it's, it's very predictable from an economic and historical standpoint to predict that you're going to see the overproduction of certain goods lead to these unicorn monopoly tech companies who figure out how to crowdsource the distribution of goods, whether that be TaskRabbit, um, the people who are just kind of taking this excess good and, and delivering it. So distribution becomes very, very key. And yes, you're right. If the acquisition, the distribution cost is too expensive, then the, the capitalist cost, then it doesn't matter how much it costs to, to, to build the thing, the distribution of the thing is prohibitive. But, but that's exactly the piece that indicates we're moving towards a new economic model because people are just leaving that, that couch on the street, even if nobody takes it. That means that the distribution costs are actually the, the prohibitive factor, not the production costs. And that's mind blowing. Like I was just talking about within a hundred years, the, the well-being of so many people have been uplifted because we can just get a couch so cheaply. I mean, couches are expensive, but like, so would like, you, would you take a couch off the side of the side of the road? I mean, I've done it several times. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you did it? Look, I write open source software. I have to scrounge. I have to take. No, but like, what about like the, the maggots and the different hygienic concerns you have of seeing a couch on the side of the road? Like, did you overcome those fears and you just put the couch in your car and said, I'll live with these diseases. Well, I'm a, I'm a picky person. So I, there's a, been enough couches and enough mattresses and stuff that I've been able to choose which one. And then oftentimes the reality of what happens is somebody just mentions it on Craigslist or something like that. And so it's not actually out on the street. I'm driving over to somebody's places and picking it up for free. I'm not paying for it. Um, or it's extremely, extremely cheap. But you're right. Most of the time it was... I didn't, I didn't have a pickup. What's the most valuable free good that you've uh, recently received? That's physical or material? Either. The most valuable free good that I've received is probably information. It's yeah. probably advice. It's probably um, information asymmetry. It's probably knowing something that my competitors don't know. So, and this is adding another disclose your competitive advantages right now <laughs> I mean, it's all open source uh, one of the competitive advantages is that the the decentralized web that i've created is it can be changed now i i believe in the immutable web i think that's important but the issue is you cannot scale up on immutability most websites that exist whether it be hacker noon google um airbnb website? Hmm? is google is that a website you visit I do visit Google, yes. I've been trying to do DuckDuckGo, but I keep on 
going back to Google, even though I don't like it. Most of these places are just um, uh, like indexes of the top Airbnb rentals, the top cars, the top Google searches, the top articles today, Hacker Noon, right? Most of them are just indexes, the top things. And the problem is if you, and I'm going to get nerdy really quickly for a minute, is if you have a database or a blockchain or a cryptocurrency or a file system that cannot change, every single time you want to update the homepage of Hacker Noon or the Google search result, you have to basically create a new copy, modif modify it before you save it back to disk or the blockchain. And that's fine, that's easy, that's not too expensive. But the problem is, now you have a discoverability problem. Millions and millions and millions of people were previously looking at that previous index, that previous top 10. And now you have to like figure out, well, how do I get all these millions of people to see this new thing, not the old, not the old thing? And so then you have to design some other system. And, and, and even if you do that and you got it all working, it turns out there's this like, um, big O notation, which is a computer scientist way of talking about the performance of something that like the, the complexity of this thing explodes for every edit that you're doing um, as you're then trying to change traffic. But if you actually just go back to that in that, that list, that top Google search result or the home page of Hacker Noon, and you're able to live update it on the fly, not only do people instantaneously get those updates, um, but, but it's, that's what people want to see in the first place. So the, the, one of the key secret sauces, as stupid as it sounds, is the fact that my decentralization technology can let you change things. You can also do immutable, okay? But like humans care about getting the latest best stuff. They don't care really about stuff from 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, let's, let's pivot a little bit here to open source. Um, so you've open sourced all the software. Um, I believe under the MIT license with your company. Is that correct? MIT, Zlib, Apache 2, whichever one you like the most, you choose which license you want. Uh, <laughs> They're all very open, yes. Um, and could you just explain um, the basis of why you made this choice? Oh, you know? David, don't make me start a flame war with a bunch of programmers that might be listening from Hacker Noon. I wrote an article I, that got, I think, the most of all my articles called um, Dijkstra was wrong. <laughs> and I'm contemplating writing an article called Stallman was wrong, although that's kind of already blown over on Twitter with Stallman stepping down from the Free Software Foundation. Hallelujah, finally. I am not a Stallman fan. So I've now just pissed off. I, I thought he was interesting and then the whole Epstein thing happened and I was like, uh, reading those emails, I was just like, oof. You know, because you know someone from afar, you're like, oh, you watch five interviews, you read five papers, and you're like, I kind of have a grasp on how you think, and it's interesting. You know what I mean? And then you start reading these emails, and you're just like, let me move on. <laughs> and I want to be clear, that's what Stallman's been doing the entire time. He uses deceptive, good-sounding, just clickbait. Free software, right? That sounds great. But his actual ideology turns out is he doesn't actually believe in free beer software. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, it's free beer that he doesn't care about. It's free as in free. Um, not only does, does Stallman explicitly state that you can charge for your software, um, but he also then, and this is where the, the biggest division comes, he also um, prevents people and organizations, depending upon what type of thing, as to whether they can use the software or not. 
so he, he claims it's like not free as in free beer, but free as in freedom. But neither condition under FSF or AGPL um, are actually upheld. You can both charge for the software that is open sourced, and you can also not allow certain organizations and people to use the software, which is not freeze and freedom. <laughs> uh, so like he's, he's a complete hypocrite in my head, but he says a lot of good sounding. There's always like, as you look at the transformation of industries, there's always hypocrites that kind of move the, the middle forward, you know, saying like, cause there, there's, I think there is something to be argued. If you made more companies open source their software, you move forward knowledge at some level that like, if you didn't open source it, you may not move the knowledge forward. Um, I mean, idealistically, that's true, but I would not even credit Stallman for moving the industry forward. And this is like now the tiff between Linux and, and Janu, right? Um, Linus came around, stole Stallman's work, and then guess what? Like trillions of dollars of value has been created on Linus's work. Um, it's just in tech alone with like Apache and the internet and like the majority of servers running Linux, not Windows anymore. It's like trillions of dollars of these tech companies that have emerged. Um, so who moved- The whole business to be had of just hiring like a fast talking pretty face and then just hire a hundred of them and then go to the hundred most popular open source projects and start a hundred companies with them. And they're like the new founder of the thing. I, I mean, that'd probably be a good strategy. But but honestly, who's moved the ball? Who's moved the industry forward more? Linus or or Stallman? Like Stallman's just done a lot of talk. Well, let's, let's instead of comparing those two, who do you actually admire in terms of uh, the open source software movement? Um, I don't want to say that I admire Linus because he's had his problems, but I I, I certainly don't admire. Stallman. Um, who do I admire in open source now? Um, they don't have to be now. It could be the original caveman if you want. He open sourced the hydroglyphics. Is that how you say it? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's just the issue is so many open source people have contributed so much, but you don't really know the names of them. Uh, they don't get a lot of credit. So I, I'm probably struggling to even think. I mean, does JavaScript count? Ryan Dahl, there we go. Ryan Dahl and Brendan Eich. I don't know, Brendan, with JavaScript as a language, I don't think it has a license, does it? I don't know, maybe somebody could correct me. Um, but Brendan Eich creating JavaScript and everybody is able to use it. I mean, obviously everybody's able to use Python too. Um, and then Ryan Dahl with Node, I, I definitely admire Node.js creator, Ryan Dahl. He's a mathematician like me. Um, and then tried to do programming. Um, so it might be more bias of similarity than anything else, which I guess maybe speaks to my ego. I apologize. But, um, hey, uh, math is the original technology. Yes, and math is discovered. It's not created. So nobody owns it, which means it needs to be open. And when some oracle comes around and patents it, ugh. Uh, anyway, I think we're, we're getting away from what you were trying to get at. Um, 
we can either rewind back to the French fries because I still have comments about the French fries or we can continue on. <laughs> um, it is just after lunch here. I could go for some fries. So what do I have to do? I have to write you a positive review on Yelp. Mark is a good guy. And then you Instacart me some French fries here. It, it was relating to the French fries and how um, banks are becoming social networks and social networks are becoming banks and money evaporating. So this government ban Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a zero sum currency and governments have fiat currency, which is zero sum. But what's happening with the ethics or unethics of disclosure is that Yelp and Google Maps, they are a type of currency, they're discoverability. And they don't like it when the restaurants ask, uh, give free stuff in exchange for review in the same way that, that banks or governments don't like it when there's a competing uh, zero-sum currency like Bitcoin. So banks ban, sorry, banks and governments ban Bitcoin because it's the same playing field. But banks and governments don't ban Yelp, um, Google Review, you know, sorry, reviews, Yelp, etc. Because those systems are operating, they're not in conflict. However, when you start introducing a open source protocol, a decentralized web system that lets people um, get free stuff in exchange for rating and reviews. And again, rating and review system leads to dystopia, so, but it's an easy thing to think about with Airbnb and that we already know. What's happening there is you're actually competing with the banks of Yelp, Airbnb, and Uber. Because what makes Uber, Airbnb, and Yelp so profitable is that they're the middleman maintaining the curated list. That's their currency. They have that curated list, as we we're talking about with the, the ability to mutate it. They're the only ones that are changing and mutating it based off of their algorithm. So when you introduce an open source or decentralized version of that stuff, then suddenly you get like all the things that we want in the crowdsourcing and gig economy and things being cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper with Airbnb and Uber, et cetera, except it can be even cheaper because Uber takes 30% right? iTunes takes 30% of a musician's stuff. Airbnb takes 30%, like, quite a transaction fee. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and people say, oh, it's worth it because Uber is the middleman that made us discover each other. So as soon as, so that no, is, the, no. yeah, it's, it's worth it because it's better than the hotel. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's like, Hey, I get more for my money. Like it's, you know, that's, that's where like they're, this is why they do what they do. Their marketplaces are so good, you know, because the, the bar in the inefficient markets, the bar is so low. Like imagine six, seven, eight years ago, a taxi, that was the, that was the bar, you know, putting your hand out, waiting on the side of the road, waiting, waiting, then they come and they have a ticker that you have no control over. There's no central entity that is regulating the experience. You know, they have their little medallion and that's kind of it. And do you want a central entity? I don't know. You want some form of like, hey, if this person charges me $30 for a $5 thing, what are my options? Not paying them and hope nothing happens, you know, or paying them and file, getting your $25 back from who? So, you know, like, I mean, you say this, but Uber, the strength of Uber is not just the list. You know, they've built so much infrastructure around it. Like, I, I remember I met with Uber um, when I was transitioning out of, uh, before I started this company and I was taking on different clients. And I met with someone from Uber and their first uh, thing to me of like, oh yeah, you know, I can help you with storytelling, marketing, you know, words that they're like, oh, do you do crisis management? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do crisis management because <laughs> they're, they're, that's what their marketing needed. 
you know, they had to stay had so many crises. They have to do the support of the crisis, now deal with the government of crisis, and then they have to market the success of the crisis or market other things that say, hey, we're giving this money to charity because, you know, and like a lot of times when disaster hits, that's kind of like the, you know, the corporate cycle. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I'm my just life saying, like, they actually serve the end users, the amount of things they have to do is so much bigger than a protocol. And I think that's what a lot of these companies that raised a ton of money on different building different blockchain solutions didn't really realize that i mean they realized it you know the sense of like hey the blockchain is the protocol and we want everyone to build around it and this will be the stream that connects everything but they didn't really realize it in the sense of like what matters first and foremost is people it's usage that's that's what drives all this shit everything doesn't happen without it well, but let me clarify. Um, I think what you're saying is accurate, but in the case of Uber, okay, the taxis were already in bed with the governments or the cities with the medallion tokens. So Uber, in the same way that Bitcoin is contentious to a government, Uber as a for-profit corporation is contentious with the local, with the medallion government lobby people. So the, a lot of the crisis management there is because Uber is this for-profit company that's competing with than this lobbied government entity. If you remove, if you remove that for-profitness of it, um, sure, Uber's doing more than Uber's doing marketing, Uber's doing all this other stuff. But there is, if there is an open source version of Uber that's decentralized, I don't think that you need the other components that Uber needs in that decentralized system um, because, well, the open source decentralized uber is not going to get banned by the government unless the lobbyists are really powerful um it's more likely uber is going to try and ban it um and it's not the open source decentralized uber that's then going to need to do crisis management um that that, that doesn't there's not a brand behind it that has to deal with the crisis management and that's why it is though right what app does the rider and what button does the rider hit to get the car oh i mean you this is confusing that, for a lot of people. That's where the brand is. But you can have 20 different apps that all have different buttons that all interface with each other um, in the same way you don't... Uh, <laughs> when I hit that button, it's going to be someone's logo on it. I, I don't think that's a logoless button. When, when you hit the button, it's going to be... The user experience is going to have a logo on it. But the logo of when you hit the button and you get a rider is going to be the logo of the driver. That would be cool. Yeah. But that would be a lot. And this, I mean, it does fit with like when you see in San Francisco, I think it was a year or two ago, they made all the drivers get their own business license. And every Uber driver in certain regions has their own business license. And it's technically their own little business operating with Uber as their lead generation and their customer support and their, you know, whatever else infrastructure things they provide. Um, but it's becomes hard. Like it's I still that period. It's still that P2P, like there's still a logo on it. Cause it can't, if you're the driver, Mark, I'm not going to, if I have a button and Mark's not available, what now I'm going to hit the button for Tom, then for Susan, then for Jerry <laughs> and keep hitting buttons of every rider driver I know until someone's within two minutes. You know, That's what the protocol does. The protocol <laughs> still is doing all that matching and is going to choose the rider that you, the driver that you prefer the most. But if that driver is not available and you're not willing to wait, it's going to match you with somebody else. You right. don't like, ridiculously cheap. To, that is ridiculously cheap to do at global scale. Like I, 
we we were sending 3,000 cryptographic transactions per second on a system that didn't have any paid infrastructure behind it. We, um, with the beta test that we we're doing with you on Hacker Noon, we had like 10,000 concurrent connections coming in in the network and I'm not paying anything and you're not paying anything. I mean, sure? someone could be invoicing me. It seems to happen all the time. Well, you're paying for your centralized host. But, uh, <laughs> the 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 gun-powered stuff. I haven't charged you. <laughs> you sure? I haven't got. I haven't. I haven't had oh, to. Oh, good. Good. I was concerned, Mark. I thought I was paying. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had to pay anything for that. Didn't they give you some data? Is that it? The, the the currency. Well, I mean, well, okay. Yes, it's true. Like, certainly, data is valuable. Now, I'm not taking that data and using it for <laughs> exploitation stuff. This is all public data, anyways. It's it's stories that people have published publicly. So, um, so from, back, back to it. Else is coming around and scraping Hacker Noon for stories. Back to the decentralized um, Uber. So, yeah. say a protocol works that basically just works. You know. It, it gives you access to tons of drivers that are moving around. You know, wouldn't 10 companies just use that protocol and then you have 10 different brand names and now those brand names are not competing based on tech because they all use the same tech and they're much more like, you know, the hardware store. You know, the hardware store competing with the other hardware store, it's not really like they're selling different hammers and nails. It's like, hey, the good is the same and now the business is competing on all these other things of location, marketing, access, distribution. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting in terms of reducing monopolies, you know. Um, <laughs> how progress in value actually moves forward is you got now 10 different companies that really are just competing in what the best user experience is, not the walled gardens underneath. Go on. Uh, no, I think we're agreeing. We want to get out of these walled gardens. <laughs> and that is like so critical. And, and what that winds up meaning is now where all the money is at, okay, at this incremental stage of actually moving progress, humanity forward, and it, it, from where we're at in our first world problems. And, oh, I don't get my Uber fast enough, uh, just to be clear. Um, is, yeah, now you've, they're all running the same system underneath, but at least you got competition on the experience behind it. The thing that moves past that is like, well, okay, what is the most important experience on that? It's actually the reliability of the drivers, you getting drivers that you like, and that has to do with the interaction effects. That, that's why Facebook's trying to become a bank because it already has that information on who likes who and why China is trying to become a social network. The money is actually in the interactions, the handshake problem, as I call it in, in, in graph theory and math, is okay, if I can always get Tom again and again and again, because I've come to trust Tom as an individual, regardless of which of the 10 different user experience apps that I'm using. Okay. Or here we go. That using your analogy. Um, I, I don't go to the hardware store. <laughs> this is bad. You're going to have to help me. I, I own drill now. So there, I, might, <laughs> there might be 10 different hardware stores that I go to, but there might be a brand of the particular type of nail. Uh, can you give me a, a nail brand? Well, it could be a width, you know, so like, hey, I really need like a 532nd. You know, that's a pretty rare one. Man, David, you're a mansy man. <laughs> Have you been building that deck? I do own a drill, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I own a drill, but my wife uses it. 
No, no, that's that's not true. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I. No, no, she doesn't. Uh, I use it. <laughs> oh, oh for you. your case. Okay. <laughs> oh, so okay. my wife actually does all the handyman stuff. She changed the light bulbs uh, just like two days ago, because I don't. I'm an engineer, and if you were to ask me how many engineers does it take to change a light bulb, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I would guess one. Yeah. You try. You you are used to that particular width on. Yeah. Um, the, so the, I mean, the core of what you're getting here is the user owns their preferences and they can distribute them to any app. You know, that's pretty exciting. Like, why does Amazon have a competitive advantage? They have all my data and they know what I've searched for. Well, what if I could just give that to the next e-commerce site? No, don't have access to it. You know, so that's a tough thing that like, and I get why Amazon doesn't want to. You know, one of the key questions here, I, I would ask, you know, so one of the sites I built, um, I did a thing, basically I plugged in Google search and I search, it used Google search to search uh, 15 or 20 of my other sites, you know, Hacker Noon included. And then the exchange there was that Google surfaces their ads uh, at the, above my search results. And Google did this for a number of years and then now they cut it off completely. And no, only people that are grandfathered in can use uh, the Google search on their site, you know, so you can't even surface, there's like surfacing their ads did not provide enough value to use this technology on other sites. So I guess, I guess going the other way, one of the most interesting experiments that could happen here to me is if Google would open source all of search. And that would blow, that's one of the things we're like, hey, when if that happens, that's kind of a milestone for just what would this new internet look like? You know, because it's, it's, it's the iconic function. Like there isn't, like Facebook, is ingrained in our lives and it has this social network and they're trying to get messaging from all these different angles, you know, and every like, but Google search is just like the epitome of uh, a, a function that a technology company owns that is just the face of like, hey, five companies can drive, you know, the whole technology industry. Okay, I think this is actually really interesting. And I just, I'm Googling <laughs> to double check. Google's PageRank algorithm, I think the patent on PageRank expired already. So this is actually just happened this last year, I'm pretty sure. But here's the fascinating thing is I agree very strongly with you. Unfortunately, search is the weakest part of Google now, right? Even though that's its bread and butter. And here's what's happened is they, I don't think they're trying to renew, and I need to probably actually check the article. I don't think they're bothering to try and renew the PageRank algorithm because the majority of how Google works now is no longer their search engine. It is a bunch of content developers. So, okay, so like anything that's not in, um, anything that has not been manually curated is still probably using PageRank and some AI machine learning extra little fluffle stuff. But the majority of things that we are searching for, especially during political elections, especially during- Well, um, yeah, I would just start by, you know, the PageRank algorithm is a piece of Google search. It is not Google search. Well, you know, that, that's where I would say how Google search works. PageRank is just a part of. Can you open source? The whole thing. Hundreds of employees that are doing manual search curation. Yeah, can't do that. But you could open source the process that they're doing. And, and it's more the technology of how they measure the curation is more interesting and scalable, like how they're valuing tweets from different people. You know, it's very clear that it's, it's changing the results. And if certain people tweet things, it can immediately move to page one. 
Now, how many people have that power? Google knows the answer to that. You know, they know like how they're putting weight on different social profiles that like is part of the algorithm and it is close ish to page rank. You know, whenever you're on Twitter and it's, you know, whatever, a nine page rank, if you're on an individual profile, now you're just analyzing how important that profile is to the overall site. So some of that, what's happening on social networks can be figured into page rank, but some of it is, and also breaking news, there's more processes in there than, than page rank is what I'm getting at. And that whenever you say, what is Google search? They don't say Google search is page rank. So whenever I say open, so open source Google search, I'm not saying open source page rank search. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Although I do want to ask you a couple, I'm going to be feisty because it is a fun topic. Um, isn't Google using the metric of how much profit they're making off of the ads that have surfaced on top as the metric for, for what makes the curation good or not? I've noticed a ton more ads now. It's hard um, to say, you know, what is someone else's North Star? I don't know. You know, like I, <laughs> I, they know they value, we know they value market share. So I would say just you're saying at ad revenue this quarter is the number one goal. If that was the goal, you know, I think they could do a lot worse things, you know, and destroy the business and make more money this quarter, you know, so like, they, they definitely value all the big tech companies. And this is where the customer gains value they didn't have before, you know, by taking a long-term view with Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime being something he knows, Jeff Bezos knows he's going to lose money or break even on for 10 years. And he's comfortable with that because he's acquiring the customer and he's lowering costs, you know? So there's, there's, there's areas where like the way these big tech companies operate and think, they can definitely benefit the customer in the short term and create more competition of people imitating them like Instacart, losing money on all these deliveries and they continue to do more deliveries because they know they can hit that critical mass point or they think they can and you know, have this massive business on their hand and there's no reason companies and startups can't cut off a chunk of Amazon, a chunk of Google and they expect it. And some of them cut off a chunk and then they pay to buy that chunk, <laughs> you know, and then they're, then both parties are better off. So there's, so true. You know, there, there's a lot of ways it can work for like, so does it, does it benefit the, the user? Yeah. Uh, I'm a human first. Absolutely. Uh, let me rewind and say, okay, I don't necessarily think it is trying to open source the North star behind Google. That's as much important on the search, but more, can you create an open source version of this curation that they've added on top of page rank? And good news is that, is what Marty Malmi's work is. Marty Malmi was the very first contributor to Satoshi on Bitcoin. Um, and How do we know he was the first? Because it's in the Git logs. It, <laughs> his domain name was owned and the Verge and Business Insider. How, and did, how did he find uh, Bitcoin? Uh, he was actually planning on building something similar and then stumbled across. Satoshi had posted something about it like a few months earlier. Uh, <laughs> and where did he find it? Do you know? I forget. Um, I mean, if you want, you can probably do a podcast interview with him as well. I, I mean, he's told the story so many times. I think in the past, he's a little bit sick of it because he's now trying to get everybody to focus on the, this decentralized pay drink, yeah. um, not blockchain. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like 2014, as early as 2014, he set out to work on this like identity, reputation. And I disagree with him a little bit on the reputation stuff, but basically identity, pay, there we go page rank for 
social connections. But the cool thing is that social connection can apply to any phrase. So it could be the name of a city, the name of a town. And, and it works. Like it, the, the algorithm actually works. I've spent a long time trying to understand it and it's pretty mind blowing. Now, the easiest way to introduce it is in the context of something like Facebook, which is what he's trying to do with his Iris app. Um, but a lot of people don't understand. It just looks like yet another Facebook competitor. And it's like, okay, who cares? But the actual algorithm underneath it is exactly what you're saying. It's effectively an open source, decentralized page rank combined with curation, except for rather than being what Google's employees are paid to curate based off of what their North Star is, it's you're going to get a curated search result based off of your friend's North Star and your own North Star not some company. So as long as you trust, I'm sorry, I should clarify. You can add Google to that. Okay. You can add these other people to it. You can add companies to it. But the cool thing is the results you're going to get back is the combined curated North star of many different people that you trust rather than just maybe I trust Google. It's cool to think about owning your data, going to a new service, giving them your data and getting value immediately. Like that's, uh, that's pretty exciting of just, um, I mean, the hospitals are such a shit show. It, isn't it like crazy? Like, why do you not know my past procedures? Like, do I have to be tracking this and bring you the data? Like, aren't you a hospital? You know, don't you have medical records? And then shit. And it, it's fine if I'm responsible for it. Okay. What's the simple way to do it? You know, it's, and then, then it's like, yeah, it is a hard challenge, but the medical one, but it gets to simpler stuff of like, if a new social network, you like a lot of these Remember when Facebook opened up their app system, a lot of the growth was connect, sign up with Facebook and then it blasts and spams all your friends that you joined. And you're basically just like, because no one owns their data, you're trying to get them to announce on the other network that they're now on the new network. And that's like the growth strategy, like the LinkedIn, do you know the LinkedIn email trick? They, they actually got sued and had to pay out tons of people. Whenever you go to connect, they're like, oh, connect address book. And that was like, then it would email your entire address book saying, join me on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> man, there's, what I'm saying is also like, Evil. Okay, if we don't own our data, how is there any network effect in these decentralized applications? And that's where you see a lot of great tech just dying out, out in the wilderness with no network effects. Well, I think that's why Bitcoin is interesting. Uh, even though I'm not really a big junkie on the blockchain cryptocurrency bandwagon, I argue against it quite strongly on Hacker Noon and Twitter. Um, but Bitcoin, the, the valuable thing to me about Bitcoin is it understood the psychology of network adoption and network effect. But everybody got distracted by zero-sum transactions that are supposed to be economical models and then somehow pontificating that that's governments. And it's like, whoa, wait a second, people, people. Like, first of all, Bitcoin and blockchain is not about government. It's about economics. So let's like delete the last five years of history on that. And then once we're talking about just the economic stuff, we're not, we're, we're like, that's crypto libertarian anarchist type people, which you may or may not agree with. What, what's actually valuable, whether you agree or disagree with those people or not, is the network effect. So I do agree with you absolutely that the most important thing is network effects. And that's certainly possible in DWeb. It's in fact more possible. That's what like, like. Why is it more possible? 
because you are your own network propagator. You don't have to join a bunch of walled gardens and get yet another um, social login account. Like your friends go with you at any app that you wind up using. And it's not that the app steals the data because you can actually put a lot of the processing inside of a secure enclave inside of the braze, inside of the browser, like I'm trying to do with party.lol. Um, so a lot of the data can still be processed locally and not given away to any app, but at least now your network of friends is everywhere. So when you upload something to a decentralized YouTube and that's automatically getting now posted to a decentralized publishing platform, <clears throat> let's say a hacker noon, um, then suddenly content <laughs> getting there <laughs> slowly but surely <laughs> one dependency after another. But see how you're doing it with getting network effect and adoption and viewer uh, readership is way more important than like all these cryptocurrencies that first come along and are like, we've built this perfect system as a white paper, haven't done any code, but it's perfect in our white paper world. And we have no users, but we're going to now raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And no, like what? Oh my goodness. The, the incremental approach you're taking is so refreshing. Uh, sorry to hate on all of the other blockchain. Uh, no, there's there's some great ones out there, but they're, you know, it's it's it it the the i the ICO bubble has a lot of the dot com bubble similarities of just like some like pets dot com raising forty million on a name, you know, that's kind of that little mat, mascot of the bubble, and the ICO will be looked back on as, you know, that irrational exuberance that happens whenever a great new technology starts to go from the fringes towards mainstream. And the moment it hits mainstream, it, it'll, it'll look differently how, in all these different ways it happens. But there's always a little, that, that irrational exuberance bubble that just comes in where just enough people understand how powerful it is, but they don't understand it well enough to understand how many battles have to be fought <laughs> to get to where like the power can be useful. And so I, I think we're past it, which is great. Meanwhile, David and his team at Hacker Noon have actually been creating real value incrementally and driving network adoption in contrast to those ICO bubble people that just exploded and had nobody. But, but some of those ICO bubble people with the audience we had, we maybe could have done a $50 million ICO and we could have failed five more ideas right by now and still had $25 million in the bank. Like a lot of those people pitched something amazing, raised all the money and then just decided, hey, I'm going to do something else. Like there's like <laughs> the way these companies have grown, some of them, um, and sometimes that's the absolute right solution. I mean, look at Slack. They raised, you know, 20, 25 million to build a video game, you know? And like now they have one of the most powerful productivity tools and companies in the world. So it's like sometimes like I rag on them. And sometimes these crazy experimenters like just give them one more day and like let them come up with something. <laughs> and they, they, they pull something out of their hat at the end of it. So like there's no definite right way to build something you know there's it's just a matter of like a lot of it comes down to like getting your personality and your risk profile and just figuring out a way to, to get better at what you do and some some people what they do is they pitch crazy ideas and they wait for crazy people to join them the herd to follow and then they reevaluate and like it's not me but it's it's, it's something that exists and like i mean i just read that we work article this morning about the we work founder 
I mean, it, the first raise he did from SoftBank, he did off a 12-minute meeting. He did a 12-minute meeting with the head president of SoftBank. And then at the end of the 12-minute meeting slash walking tour, he, the guy told him, you're not taking enough risks. You need to go crazier. You need to level up and turn this thing. Your only chance at a $100 billion company or, or a trillion-dollar company is to go even bigger. You know, and he gave him this basically blank check. And at the end of all of this, I mean, WeWork filed for a $47 billion IPO earlier this year, then cut it in half and filed again because so much shit was wrong with it. And now SoftBank bought them out and they're worth $7 billion and the founder got a billion dollar check to leave and like go away. And it's like, well, he did a billion dollar check in like six years, plus all the money he made along the way. Like, I mean, I wouldn't want to work for him, but I'm definitely just intrigued at the level of human that he is. Like, how can you like fail so spectacular and your end result is $1 billion? Like, that's literally what he achieved. <laughs> and I, was like, I mean, I got a one word answer for you. Nepotism, cronyism. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to accuse all those people of nepotism and cronyism, but in my CEO Bay Area experience, I'm certainly finding out that investors do not invest at all, except for some very rare select few legendary investors like Tim Draper, but pretty much all the other VCs in the Valley. Again, there are, there are exceptions. Those exceptions are my investors. <laughs> I have more than Tim Draper, but um, <laughs> a lot of the investors don't invest off of what they talk about, team, traction, technology. No, I guarantee you that that 12 minute meeting with the SoftBank, you know, with, with the WeWork and SoftBank, the check did not get written in 12 minutes. It took, I'm guessing, the WeWork founder several years to get SoftBank trying to get a meeting with him. And he kept on being the girl that got the guy, enough guys chasing him, uh, that there was enough VCs in the Valley that had already given him enough money that SoftBank at this point was like, we want in on WeWork. And so he didn't even have to take the meeting. The FOMO had occurred. There was the, enough shoulder rubbing across all the other VCs in the Valley saying, we all want in on WeWork. We all want in on WeWork. And then SoftBank was like, oh no, we have to get in on WeWork. And then a 12 minute meeting happened and he closed, you know, how many, how, how much money did you say? 4.4 uh, 4 billion. The company's now worth 8 billion. So, <laughs> no, you know, so... I, so I would argue seven, that I it, it, it sounds epic that it was 12 minutes, but to me that indicates that no, it was actually not to do with the meritocracy, sorry, the meritocracy of the tech, the traction or the team that he had developed um, or, or whatever at WeWork, but simply that he had gotten enough nepotism and cronyism and, and circle and FOMO going in this elite circle that SoftBank. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. And when you have an exclusive good, you have an exclusive good. You know, that's why people will, it's just, you can't get it elsewhere if it's, if it's truly unique, you know, and that can make a rational pricing. You know, once it's saying there's no competition, you know, because you believe it's a unique good and a unique offering and a unique service, unique company. Um, so it's, um, I, I get that. I get that. Um, I guess how, I mean, practically, how can the decentralized web create more FOMO? Like that's where, you know, you've tried a number of projects on it. Uh, but, you know, when you think about it from like a bigger picture, like a 10 year run rate, you know, like it, the people keep coming back to the killer app, 
you know, and like how does blockchain have a killer app? And really like the closest thing is Bitcoin itself. You know, that's really the only, the only thing that you could really argue in my mind. Other stuff, I'm sure there's 50 founders ready to say, no, I got it. <laughs> and here's my numbers. But like, you know, from the mainstream and it's, it's like that is the mascot. Bitcoin's the only mascot it has right now. So I guess practically, how do you think other uh, founders of decentralized applications and people that want a more decentralized web can you what tactics or strategies can they use to create more more FOMO in their their offerings? Yeah, so there's three categories. There's crypto, blockchain, and DWeb. Um, crypto is not cryptocurrency. Crypto is like the cypherpunks of the old days. So think of crypto as their value is privacy, and that relates more to Signal and Telegram, which are actually centralized. Yeah. So then blockchain, um, blockchain is very easy at getting FOMO, right? Because blockchain, the value of blockchain is greed. It's scarcity. It's very Ayn Randian. No, it's peer-to-peer. No, blockchain <laughs> is not peer-to-peer. It is not. It is not actually peer-to-peer because I can't take Bitcoin, walk up to somebody in the street and give them Bitcoin. I have to be connected to the Bitcoin mining network for that operation to be achieved. So it's actually not peer-to-peer. Yeah, and but it's still without a true central entity, you know, or, or another human at the, at the core of the technology, technology, being able to do that transaction without another human, I, I would put as, that's like the beginning of the peer to peer definition. Like, so, I think you start peer to peer, you look at as a spectrum. I think once another human's not involved, it, it can be put as peer to peer. And if it, no human or no business or no government is involved, now you're getting closer to real peer to peer. I mean, yeah, but also bite. Um, Amber, uh, Dr. Amber Cazell, she's at Stanford, um, wrote a really good article on Hackernet on this. Uh, I think I forget what I forget the title name, but basically saying that like Bitcoin is a serial dictatorship. You don't know who the next di- dictator is going to be. <laughs> New block has its dictator. So, but yeah, it's decentralized across a bunch of rotating random dictators, but it's still in each block centralized, which is interesting. And then people are probably, but, but yes, Bitcoin is certainly more peer-to-peer than Goldman Sachs. Um, and then- Or just the dollar, <laughs> you know? But now this is where I find D-Web as being so important because D-Web is actually like decentralized web. So it's actually webbing people together. It is actually the peer-to-peer part. So I could literally walk up to somebody on the street and if I had Bluetooth enabled or if I wasn't relying upon AT&T, that's a different physical layer. Like I could actually transfer a file or a photo or I could send them a message directly connected peer-to-peer. Um, and so that's why I think most people out there actually want this D-Web thing. But you're right, D-Web of all of them is the hardest to create FOMO around because it's so fundamentally open. And um, humans that exist in capitalism and socialism, which are zero-sum games of scarcity, okay, both capitalism and socialism are that way, n- have used FOMO as the, as the way to kind of create the evolution of capitalism and socialism and and dweb is so fundamentally opposed to that open source is so fundamentally opposite of that that it catch catches people off guard so how do we create fomo with open dweb peer-to-peer decentralized technology good news (laughs) um silicon valley again right um tech entrepreneurship it has nothing to do actually with the technology 
right? The technology is already giving value add to a lot of organizations, to Internet Archive, hopefully to you, David, at Hacker Noon, to, um, to DTube and Not a Bug and these others. Value is already being created, and so it will continue to move forward because it's actually creating real value in the same way that Linux created real value in contrast to the more restricted licenses. So to get the FOMO, all you need to do is add the branding, the people, the idea, the excitement, the Silicon Valley-ness to it. And, and now you can have many different companies that have their own branding that are using open source decentralized technology underneath that the investors actually are not going to maybe get FOMO over individually, but they will get FOMO over the talent of the entrepreneur like you, David, and like me, right? It's us as people that have these North star ambition and goals that we're trying to move towards that regardless of the technology or not, whether we're a programmer or not, we force the world to move towards that progress, move towards that North star that we hope humanity will all love. And, and that is where the FOMO exists. It is in the people, people powered technology, technology for people and the FOMO of the people leading those movements forward. Just like it's always been people following people. True story, bro. <laughs> As an engineer, it took me a long time to figure out, especially when I was pitching a bunch of <laughs> investors thinking of team tech attraction. One of them also kind of pretty excited is uh, making your community, your shareholders. Yeah. And I did this on a smaller scale with our equity crowdfunding. It was a real pain in the ass to set up, you know, a lot of work to do. But at the end of it, you know, we have 1200 shareholders and 90% of them came from our site. You know, so there's like, that was like, there was FOMO in the sense of this will last for a certain amount of time. And you cannot always buy Hacker Noon shares because we're not always running an equity crowdfunding operation. But there wasn't FOMO in the sense of, hey, I like, it wasn't saying, hey, there's this great new thing you should check out. It was more like, you already use this thing. Do you want to own some of it? You know, and that's where like, there's no reason 1200, it, like there's no reason it should end there. You know, like when getting to the point <laughs> where every single human that uses your service or business owns, however much their usage is, owns a portion of it. Um, that's where like, you know, I don't know exactly how it needs to be structured because most of the structures that are attempting something like this are failing. They just so are. Is there, a, <laughs> is there another crowd sale coming up? No, no. Uh, <laughs> um, no. I, As full disclosure to the audience, I got in on the first one. And so if you also got in on the first one, good job to you. But all the people listening to this podcast right now who did not get on the first one, <laughs> yeah, you don't have the FOMO now. <laughs> but imagine, like, take Google, for example, if they were to be the model of doing this. Like, as you search more, as you give up information to Gmail, as you give up information to Google Maps, you just keep earning real Google stock. You know, and this is where, like, the tokenization companies are trying to get at it. Like, oh, let's tokenize a hotel. Let's tokenize an Andy Warhol and show people that it can work. But it's like equity is still tried and true where equity is just more trusted. It's a more 
like the issuing of tokens gets sketchier and sketchier. Like there's a whole government, multiple government entities regulating the sale of equity. So it becomes something where like, you know, ideally, like, is it better for me to have 1200 people that on average gave a thousand dollars or is it better to have, you know, 120,000 people that gave me a hundred dollars. It's probably better to have 120,000 people that gave me a hundred dollars to have more of an army of shareholders and just more of a people that care about my best interests. But that is logistically like near impossible, you know? So I don't know what's going to solve it, but as we look at like the divisions of ownership, I am excited of, of how equity could move onto the blockchain or how tokenization be, could become more trusted. Yeah, I want to compliment you again on this, though, which is a lot of these other teams took the route of create the system and then the crowds will come versus you created the crowd and then added equity where, where there's already value to it, right? Like the value yeah. now already exists while the other ones completely valueless trying to get a bunch of people to come. And so I, I, I do agree that there are merits to tokenization technology, but I want to strongly call them Ponzi coins for now um, because still the way that you did it was, was you created the value first and then I don't think you've even tokenized yet. You've still done it through no. the government process. And I no, think that's exactly. the right way to do it. That's more ethical and less slimy. And then on the second point though, which is, okay, let's say we took the way that you did it and we, and you did properly switch it over to a blockchain and went all tokenized and technically you did an ICO, but you're not a scam, not a Ponzi coin because you've already delivered and made real value. I would still say that, Ooh, okay. Blockchain is fundamentally in the Bitcoin white paper. Um, not only the, the adoption curve from a site, standpoint, but also making sure that the, there's universal consensus agreement on a, every transaction. That is zero sum. But equity is not zero sum. That is why I do like those parts of capitalism. Equity it creates an ROI. It actually creates value that, that didn't exist before. So yeah. I'm not quite sure that even if we were to tokenize a lot of these systems onto a blockchain, like if we're actually using proper blockchain technology, the, the math and algorithms seem like, seem like a mismatch. Because if you do want equity, then, well, wait, like equity produces, no, I shouldn't say equity produces value. You, David, and your team produce value. And there's an ROI on that. And that's not the mechanism that most blockchains operate off of. So I'd still therefore argue that maybe the tokenization of equity should not be done on a blockchain um, or, or maybe people call it blockchain because that's just the buzzword going around, but, but there's still mechanics there that seem off that, that zero sum versus creating value. Yeah. Non-zero sum. Um, from a simplicity perspective, you know, I would much rather have 10,000 people holding equity than 10,000 people holding tokens. It's better. It's, it's more trusted. It's more known what you're actually holding. You know, it's, it's just more, I mean, and maybe this is an argument that I should go public in Australia, you know, where they seem to like have smaller companies go public pretty casually. I remember talking to a company, they were like, no, instead of a series A, we decided to go public in Australia. And I was like, that's great. <laughs> you are great. <laughs> so, you know, there's many ways to do it. Um, I, I don't want to say any way is uh, worse than the other, you know, it's, um, what what matters to me is moving it's like moving people in a funnel first you read one good story 
then maybe you come back and I'm part of your reading. Then maybe you write a story or maybe you write a story first, then you read, then you write five stories. But like getting to the point where more readers and writers care about and have a vested interest in this site growing. And whenever I grow, they grow. And the more relationships I can create like that, the stronger my site and my business is. So that's kind of led me to equity crowdfunding, you know, a year ago or, you know, nine months, whatever it was. And more, there are more, I'm not, it's not, it's a tool. It's a, it's a system. It's a structure to do it, but it's not uh, the end game. And there's going to be a lot more, a lot more ways. And I, I saw, I mean, there's been some startups emerge and die. I remember one was like every single early customer earns equity. And basically the idea was like every customer is worth their weight in gold in the beginning, the first 10, the first hundred. And based on how much they spend, they actually are buying equity with that money. And that company sounded great. I think it's now dead. Uh, but <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, uh, I, I would, I'm very curious and want to read and publish more about different ways to structure a company to create mutual incentives that both of you actually win and get the proper rewards. Yeah, I there. Another thing to note on that is it can be beyond, it can be beyond money, right? So there's again yeah. bias with with uh, trying to have gun help power some of uh, Hacker Noon, which is maybe some of the things that the readership is contributing is that they're helping actually host the articles and the content and provide bandwidth um, at a very 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 little amount. Um, for Hacker Noon. So that means the yeah, more- we're getting 200,000 people to do a couple megabytes of, you know, storage adds up pretty quickly. And, you know, I'm excited to test it in our annotations, um, our decentralized annotations, which we'll do an upcoming episode on. Uh, did I just launch our product? Yeah, sweet. Launched. Boom. Yeah. Let's uh, wait not for live yet. The product is not live yet. Let me take that back. <laughs> Austin, Dane, and me to uh, finish getting things ready. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, it's coming and it'll be very exciting. So in two things, I'm not, that's not to say that people shouldn't also get involved on like an equity standpoint as well. Obviously you can't right now because the equity crowd sale is closed. <laughs> FOMO. Um, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the idea that like the more you use there's a discussion in our community that like, this is how down to the operating system things should be built. And so our community is actually starting considering implementing a operating system <laughs> to build some of this stuff. Uh, be careful. Soon you're going to be writing your own language that nobody reads. Ah, oh, I know. Yeah. Don't <laughs> worry. That's where the end game is, man. And they, it's the insane asylum. <laughs> it, it is. I'm looking at my hair link. Um, that, yeah, that as a user uses something longer, whether that be an app on their phone, um, a website in the browser, or whatever, that actually um, the operating system should start saying, and, and, and I want to be clear, purely for the user's sake, not for anybody else, okay, not like weird crypto mining stuff, that it, that it would be nice if I could visit any website in the world or install instantly any app in the world. And I know that my phone is only going to give them like 1% storage and 1% um, CPU processing. But as I use the apps more and more and more, that clearly is an indication that the user values the app or the website or is reading Hacker Noon more and more. That then the operating system would automatically, but except for we're going to have to do this manually for now with, with websites, that the operating system would be like, oh, actually, since you visit Hacker Noon, you know, like 20% of the week, 
Um, so it was like one out of five days or, or maybe you, David, you're visiting it every single day that like the, it automatically starts saying Hacker Noon can use more and more space. And, and I want to be clear, this is going back to the, the comment I made about, well, what is D-Web at the very, very, very beginning, which is if my kid is watching that YouTube video that I've approved of again and again and again, and then we jump in the car, it'd be nice that the app would have figured out, oh, we've already watched this video 20 times. It's going to be watched again. We might as well make space for it on the physical device. So that way, then the next time we watch it, we can just watch it straight from the device rather than having to spend money transferring it through the internet from one end of the globe to the other end of the globe. Um, and then just, then there's a second layer of like, okay, well, since people are starting to have more and more data and are helping to host and crowd host this data, um, it would be nice if, if the people, the viewers themselves could be the bandwidth and, um, and storage hosts for the content. But of course, that's, that's certainly a different ethical line between it being purely for the user's sake and whether the users are helping contribute to the network yeah. for other users' sake. Um, so did you, uh, the presidential debates were this past week, um, and uh, I saw Yang talked about uh, basically bringing worldwide data rules to like the World Trade Organization and data control. Are you uh, scared of governments starting to regulate like how corporations use data or is it more like, hey, if there's ever going to be a, a, there's absolutely no incentive for Amazon to ever share my customer, let me have my customer data and share it, that the salute, like it becomes a chicken and the egg problem where the, I know the long-term solution isn't the government managing data, but I know the short-term problem is we cannot actually own our data because the, the corporations would basically you know, they're de they may be killing would be exaggerated, but they're depreciating the value of their scarce asset uh, if they, you know, actually would allow us to control our, our data in the way that would be the best for the user. So it's, it's one of these things where like, if we're going to make progress, is it in the best interest for government or world organization to intervene? Or is it something where you trust the market will power through this stage of capitalism and get to the spot where the user has more power on his own? Oh, you pushed my back up against MIT, Zlib, Apache licenses versus Richard Stallman. And now you're pushing my back up against Mark. Are you a capitalist? <laughs> like a fair, or are you? Um, I mean, I'd rather not disclose too much. My, my, I'll say this, is that I do think data protection is good. Okay. So ideally laws around data protection is optimal. However, I will state this is that if anybody thinks that those laws are coming from the people and not Facebook's lobbying agency, then I'm sorry, you might be naive and I'd ask you to start researching stuff. So the reality is that most of these data protection laws are coming from the biggest lobbying uh, firms that are paid off by the biggest, most profitable capitalistic companies in the world. So, so you're fairly you, confident we're living in an oligarchy? Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and I have a bunch of other justifications that I explain from the freeism route as to why that's happened, is that the, the zero-sum game of capitalism has been solved, and now it's purely about creating. So there's, there's nothing left to be solved in capitalism, and it's just creating- um, Even it, the next dollar. 
That's what you can solve. The next step. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They grind it out. I do think that capitalism can be ethical, but when you combine capitalism with what we have with most governments is it's actually really not capitalism. It's like, it's like government capitalism. And then it's, it becomes very corrupt cronyism. So I, I do think regulation around data is a good thing, but most of that regulation is coming from Facebook itself. Why, why would Facebook want to regulate itself? Well, because any new social network incumbent, okay, is creating a Facebook competitor, before they can even launch, they're going to have to figure out how to comply yeah. with this IRS level tax code yeah. compliance thing. And there won't, they won't even be able to launch. So it actually in, entrenches the monopolies rather than um, really pr protecting users. So that's my take. And I did, I did a whole Cassell report um, video on this as well about how like, Uber did just that. Like now they are the medallion holders. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, people, if they see a moat they can build, it's just self-interest. You know, it's nothing crazy about the world. It really has little to do with, to me, capitalism, socialism, or freeism or anything else. It's just like, hey, I'm in the spot I'm in now. I've worked very hard to get to the spot. I see a way to create a moat for my competitors and I'm going to do it. Like, I think it's really that simple whenever they're paying the lobbying firms and they're trying to, they know some laws will come up and they're saying, Hey, if I structure, if I'm a part of structuring the laws, it's going to be better for me. And that's just what their self-interest is. And <laughs> well, this is actually the stuff you have to consider when you go public that I did not understand because I, I always thought like, oh, I'm going to be one of those good capitalist people that like builds a value adding company and maybe we go IPO at some point and, you know, I'm not going to be this like crony lobbying. But then I think it was Peter Thiel or, or somebody in some documentary I was watching basically made the dumb comment that it was suddenly clicked in my head that like, when you go public, you basically have a large portion of that equity that's controlled by the public, which is the government. So if you want to maintain your equity position in your own company, you have to figure out how to have a PR marketing campaign that influences your shareholders, the public, AKA the government. And I was like, Oh snap. Like, I just like, it was, I don't, I feel like it didn't come across in how I just explained it, but like, yeah, if you go public in Australia, like you suddenly either are going to be bought out or the, the public shareholder, which is run by the government is going to tell you what to do. And so that means in order to protect yourself against the government, you have to figure out how to become the government. Isn't it a stretch to say your shareholders are the government? Well, with, with, a, with public stock, like it's in the same way, I don't actually own the land that I own out in Utah when I temporarily lived out there and it was cheaper because I grew up in rich California and have this, you know, California privilege problem that I moved to Utah. I'm like, wow, this is so cheap. I'll just buy something. Um, I don't actually really own the land. I own a certificate from the government that says I own that land, right? It's the same thing with stock. Like literally a stock share is a certificate that the government has approved of that states that you own that portion of the company. But really it's not you that owns it. It's the I government. You're arguing they're the custodian. And if the custodian feels like changing the rules, technically they can. And if yes. the custodian's not trusted, they can change the rules, you know? So 
I mean, that's why whenever you see these currencies go through hyperinflation, you're like, my custodian sucks. <laughs> and I thought I had enough money to own a house. Now I have enough money to buy lunch. You know, <laughs> it's not trusted anymore. But this is why I'm so excited about freeism, David, because it inverts this whole model. Rather than capitalism and socialism being about zero-sum transactions where even good ethical people have to figure out how to get money out of people, guess what? We can just measure the distribution of that production. We can just measure how much have you given away, whether it's for free or not, but it naturally incentivizes Facebook to give away more services for free that are of value add to people, even restaurants to give away food for free up to some, you know, actually, you actually hit, you know, American production of food scarcity, which guess what? Like we don't in the U S other parts of the world. Sure. There's, there's um, hunger. Um, but a lot of the hunger that happens in the U S is because we're not giving away that for food for so free. In, in this example, how does the restaurant buy the ingredients? Okay. Um, well, uh, this, this gets really detailed and I can either start rambling about it or people can go read the Hacker Noon article on it and watch my tech talk out in Prague where I explain the economics. So it, it's yeah, maybe, maybe that's the way to go. We'll leave people wondering, how does the restaurant get the ingredients? But, but I still want to focus on, because yeah, Andrew Yang says a lot of stuff about UBI and I think it sounds good in theory with the whole democratic uh, debate stuff, but the reality is the math, even though his slogan is math, the math doesn't add up. If you give $1,000 to everybody and there's a 300 million population, that is a lot of money that you're giving out. Now, he does say he's going to pull it from other sources which and then shut down those sources. And I think that's actually pretty smart. Um, but, but the math doesn't work out because we still live in a scarcity environment. So um, somebody's going to figure out how to skew yeah. that. Thing. I mean, it's just very simple. If you increase the money supply, you have inflation. If all else remains equal, it's, it's that simple that, you know, the, the, the market may not realize the money supply is increased right away. You know, and there, there can be delays there, but it's, um, and this is where, where Bitcoin is more exciting to me than most other currencies of, Hey, it's still being created, but 21 million is the cap. And under no situation will there be more than 21 million Bitcoins. And that's where like, I've all these token projects, like once, once you can control money supply, it doesn't matter what you did before. You can control how much of the company you own. You can control how, how much everything is worth, you know? So it's, um, yeah. This is such a knowledge bomb. It took me a week to figure out how to phrase that one slide in my tech talk. And I, I, I don't know if you've watched it or not, but the way that you just phrased that about like, look, it's as simple. You when you change the money <laughs> supply, everything like, like, oh, like uh, people listen to this because it's such a key piece to the economic problem is everything's bound to the money. Then look at what we have now. It's the money supply. The government controls it. And whenever they want to change the interest rate, they change the interest rate. And the moment the interest rate changes, that's when all the deals happen. Because all yes! the changes and all the smart people know this is when we make this type of deal because they change the money supply in this way. So it's, <laughs> you, you, you don't have to talk to many bankers to realize this. It's like, just ask them what happens the moment interest rate changes. Just go into a bank, literally ask anyone there what's going on today. <laughs> You'll get a full like economics lesson about like how their business actually works. It's nepotism. It's they know they're a clo they're closer to the money supply chain. I mean that one. I don't know if it's necessarily nepotism. It's definitely insider knowledge and you yes. know knowing what saying. Hey, I'm a banker, and whenever the rates change, we're going to change the way we do deals. 
because our business is entirely dependent on their business. <laughs> like if the dollar is starting to not be trustworthy, Wells Fargo is not looking so good in the United States. It's not like they're suddenly going to be like the best crypto custodian tomorrow. So let's forget about where you get the ingredients for the ice cream. Like this is the, why the very first thing I started with, the first economic problem we have to address is this issue around money supply being a finite number. And I, I model it from a post-scarcity standpoint. That freaks out some people. It's like, oh, we're not post-scarcity. That, that, that's fine. The point is in the math. You can actually change this. And when, when you change this one little variable, you do get other problems you have to solve for. You can change it simply by introducing ratios rather than introducing... Uh, rather than having a fixed money supply, because that means if you have one coin and a hundred coins is the total money supply, then you introduce a hundred more coins. It doesn't matter if you're holding that one coin, one over 200 is less than one over a hundred in terms of buying power. Um, but like, wait a second, like we have math for the last like thousands of years and there's this thing called ratios. And so if you actually switch money supply over to being modeled as ratios, not unit items not tokens but ratios then suddenly all these problems just go i get where you're going a lot of the resistance then would be on the user people like opening up their bank account seeing that number and trusting that number you know once you get into ratios suddenly you could have the buying power to buy a house suddenly that buying power could only be a car you know like no, no, no. The buying power stays fixed, actually, because it's changing with so the What economy. are you fixing it against? It, you're, you're against the economy. It's a ratio of the economy. So, uh, so you, the you, number, to, you can't be fixed against all goods at one time. You can. Wait, oh, sorry. I make, I make this disclaimer in my talk. You can only do this in an information technology. You cannot do this... You cannot do this without something like the internet. But guess what? We have the internet. And <laughs> better, we're getting D-Web stuff. So we don't need these centralized monopolistic companies that are controlling our data flow. We actually can just do this with the internet, period, in local markets and global markets. And it's pretty trivial to compute. I, I want to be, I wanna be like really clear. It's, it's a whole lot less work to compute um, every day dynamic changes to an entire market economy than it is to do most of the infrastructure that we have for, for interest rates and stuff like that. Um, there's a whole set of other things on it, but I want, I want to go back to, to the excitement, which is, yes, people do like seeing a number go up and down. Their bank account goes up when they add money to it and it goes down when they spend from it. Um, and they don't, people don't intuitively really like ratios, but it's perfectly possible to convert a ratio back into a number. Um, you usually just have to multiply it against the, well, it's a little bit more complicated, but I, th- that's what I talked about in the last problem in my talk is, well, how do you now present a number that gives people their, the, the, sc- the status that they yeah, want? Yeah, yeah. I, I hate that, but it's just a game mechanic. Sure. How do you convert back into a leaderboard or a scoreboard that then people feel like, oh yeah, I can like buy a Lambo or whatever it is. And, and the math is pretty simple. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than ratios, but it's totally possible to convert back into some number that people are like, oh, I want to up my game. So it's got all of the mechanics of, of capitalistic drive, but all of like the, the, the social caring stuff that socialists want is just, oh, it's beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> Stop. Ready to create a new society, huh? I don't need to create a new society for it. As long as people have phones and internet, it will work. However, 
I'm scared of AT&T and the telecom monopolies around the world. So we are working on actually building physical peer-to-peer telecom infrastructure. And we ran the first test that worked successfully at the Internet Archives D-Web Camp in July. We ran an offline peer-to-peer mesh telecom and it worked. That's dope. Um, maybe competing with AT&T, maybe getting ahead of yourself in terms of uh, prioritization. Yes. So that's going to be two years out. <laughs> For now, we're doing the prototypes because it's fun. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so we've had people for about an hour and a half now. You should probably let them go. Uh, <laughs> Mark, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me at hackernoon slash at Mark Nadal, where I have some writings and articles. Um, but I'm also trying to get my Twitter follower account up. So I'm trying to tweet more. So if you can, follow me there, because that's where a lot of my thoughts will go first. And then they usually get assimilated and posted to hackernoon. So if you want to hear my thoughts, the crazy stuff that we're working on, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Mark Nadal is my username. And then uh, read some of the incredible articles that I have self-published to Hackernoon. And as you get excited reading my articles and realize, wow, I already thought about this and I can do it way better than Mark, then you can just get on Hackernoon and publish an even better article. <laughs> Sweet. If you didn't know, this was the Hackernoon podcast. <laughs> All right. I'm David Smook, CEO of Hackernoon, and I will talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much, David. Cool. Do you want to 